Anyway, welcome. I'm uh, welcome to you, Craig and, and, and Sugar. I feel like I am sitting beside two real celebrities here today. And, um, I, I, you know, my excitement was quite childlike to chat to you two guys uh, this morning. But now I've been in journalism quite a long time and you tend to get a little bit cynical as you do. So when the publisher sent me the book, I thought, well, you know, this might be an attempt to cash in. I mean, we've all heard the Rodriguez Sugarman story now, right? We've seen the docky, so how much more is there to tell? But I was incredibly pleasantly surprised. This book is a real page turner. And what you get in the end is you feel that, okay, well, there was the rock and roll fairy tale where Rodriguez... Uh, takes the trip back from obscurity to, to world renown. And here's the second fairy tale of two fanboys, you know, two regular guys who, who happen upon a story and they end up going to the Sundance Festival and to the Oscars. And another thing that I really have to say to your great credit is that in the book, you never come across as two guys uh, trying to say, look, we've arrived now, we're really important. We, it's, you tell it, you know, like two regular guys who happened to go on this like absolutely fantastic trip. And it's wonderful to read. It's, it's life-affirming, despite all the tragedy also involved in the tale. So one of the first things I'd like to ask you is, you know, where is this book selling, and is it selling? Um, well, the book's selling everywhere good books are sold in this country. Um, but it's uh, also been translated into um, German, um, and it's selling in, in Germany and uh, Sweden and Italy at the moment, and then um, in Canada as well. And then uh, Malpaso, a really great publisher in uh, Spain, has bought the rights for the Spanish territory, so they're busy translating it into Spanish now as well. Wow. So you haven't, you haven't received any royalty checks yet? That's still a... <laughs> no, we're new to this business, you see. We're not really authors, so we've, we found out there's apparently certain twice a year when you find out the good or the bad news and it's not happened yet so we're very optimistic it's we're happy it's selling more than just in, in South Africa it's selling very nicely in South Africa the sales from overseas we're still waiting to hear but honestly we're just happy that, to have done it and got it finished and put it out there whatever happens now is 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 what happens but yeah. For us, it was, a it was part of the journey. It was actually just completing the book as well. Well, it deserves to, to sell really well because as the documentary, it's, it's put together um, very nicely. You know, it's, it starts at Sundance and it kind of ends, well, with the Oscars and then after that with, with Malik's suicide. So hopefully we'll get to, to, to all of that. But, but one of the things that intrigued me is in the back in the author's note, you say that you had the problem that you know how to tell a story where you were the writers and two of the main characters. So you decided to opt for the third person, as uh, the two journalists did who wrote All the President's Men about the Watergate scandal. I think that worked really well, but I'm still curious, how did the collaboration process really work? I mean, who wrote what? How did you send it back and forth? Um, well, it's, it, I've got to say that it was, Craig had lived overseas for many years, and when the movie happened, he came back into the picture, and then he came back further into the picture, because he moved back to Cape Town. Now, neither of us are from Cape Town, but I live in Aranyazucht, and he moved into Aranyazucht. We landed up living a couple blocks from each other, which is too weird to be true. Not weird, in a, you know what I mean? So, uh, <laughs> so it, it, actually, someone in America wrote this disgusting book about this. So we thought, you know what, someone's got to do this properly. Yeah. We live close to each other. We decided the best thing to do would be to write it together. And the process was just very, very straightforward. It, 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 it was a very simple process. We're still talking to each other all the time. So that worked out nice for two people doing a project together. Yeah. It's been lovely. 
and basically, I should say that, that, that the, the style of the book is Craig's. Craig mm -hmm. mostly wrote and completed and stylized the book. The story, we, we shared the beginning of the story. We were both present at the Rodriguez story. After Rodriguez goes back in 98, Craig immigrated and my story picked up then because I stayed involved with the website and stuff. So I wrote about that and then, mm -hmm. so I feel it was a really down the middle 50-50 effort, which is really nice because that's how it should have been. Yeah, and that makes sense as well because was, that was one of the questions I had is like, how do you get the tone of voice right? Because, you know, somebody's got to have the tone of voice. And you, of course, had a wealth of material as well with your, your long correspondence with, with Malik, uh, who is another revelation in the book because we not only get to, to know more about the story behind the story and, and Rodriguez as well, but of course about Malik, who, who, who basically pulled off an impossible stunt. Yeah. Um, but one more question about the writing. When, when was the point where you decided, okay, we need to do this book? Was it because of that really bad American book? or It was one of the... Yeah, it was a combination. I think um, after Malik died, um, Sugar called and said, listen, we need to put out this book. We need to do this book. And, and, and you galvanized it. You said, let's get it done. And so we basically decided to get it done. But it was also a combination of that and this really terrible book that came out called... What's it called? Searching for it's sugar. called Searching for Sugar Man, and it's a, a self-published book that, you know, I think every copy of our book that sells now, that book will sell because people are going, you know, mm. but it's a, and it's really terrible. And the guy didn't speak to us at all. <laughs> so he wrote this whole book without talking to us. So, Jeez. He's, a, he's an American writer. I'm not going to mention, mention his name. You can Google it. But uh, uh, he, he's written many, many books. I had a, when he contacted me. I had a book by Van Morrison on him, and I took the book down. I looked, and I thought, oh, "I'm not going to worry about this guy." He just—he just—he literally just bashes out books and puts them out and stuff like that. But he galvanised us to and motivated us to write our book, which is one thing we thank him for. Well, maybe you should do a proper book about Van Morrison next. But um, <laughs> that's been done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he wants uh, to speak to him. He's really a nasty human being. <laughs> You know that he really is. Sorry to all the Van fans, but I've got to tell you, love the art, not the artist. You know? Yeah, I've kind of imagined as much. Maybe we should get to the artist uh, Rodriguez next. But before we do, uh, one of the, the the pieces of criticism against the movie uh, back then was uh, why omit the fact that you know the Australians really loved Rodriguez too, and they had him over for a tour in '79 and '81. They played with Midnight Oil. You write about that in the book now, and uh, in the book you also say that Malik was very taken with Van Herzog's style of documentaries in, in, in the sense that he believed it's not the facts so much that need to be revealed, but the truth in the facts. So, you know, he took a few liberties, which you talk about in the book as well, but he also omitted the Australian thing completely. Yeah. And what did you feel about that decision at the time? Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting um, way of filmmaking in that, um, you know, Malek used the devices of fiction to write a non-fiction book mm. so you know to so that the, you know the story would be something that you know you'd be on the edge of your seat watching you know so for example like um you know he would get you know interview sugar telling one part of the story me telling that part of the story somebody else telling that part of the story mm. and then you'll take the clip that yeah, that looked best, you know, that worked best on screen. That kind of thing yeah. he did. So you know, Sugar is, would say stuff that you actually see yes. in real life, or <laughs> we believe that Sugar is meeting you in the Mexican kitchen. It's actually some other random guy. Yeah, yeah that kind of yeah, thing. Stuff yeah. like that. So he used a lot of the fictional devices in a non-fiction uh, environment. You know. Yeah. But and the other question about Australia, I think, uh, do you want to go? For well, it? yeah. The thing is, this is that 
remember when Craig and I did our search, it was pretty much pre-internet. The internet mm. had not yet evolved, not even in South Africa anyway. And if you Googled Rodriguez, there was nothing. Mm. We put up the first website, so when you Googled Rodriguez, you could get something. But the simplest fact is this. We did a long, extensive search, mm. and we had no idea that he'd been in Australia. We found out for the first time when Rodriguez called me that night. He said, oh, I've toured Australia. I would really, because if we had known, we would have gone and looked there, and we didn't know. So it's not, for Malik, it was not part of our search. As we say, if, if the Australians are unhappy, they can make their own movie. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, it wasn't part of our story, and he left it out. In the yeah. book, it's fully covered. So we, we, we it's not an anti-Australian thing on. Oh on no, no. And <laughs> uh, no, I, I didn't. I didn't think Unless this much. Unless you watch the cricket. <laughs> yeah, but that's now the other interesting thing, is um, one question that remains very hard to answer is why, when this album did absolutely nothing in America, as. Um, as the guy from Sussex Records, Avant, uh, says, you know, six people bought it, you know, me and my <laughs> wife and maybe our daughter. Why did the South Africans and Australians end up falling for this album so badly? Good taste. <laughs> so literally, I mean, it was an album that came with all the others. It was the Beatles, the Stones, Cold Fact. We listened to it. We really liked it. You know, when... When Malik first heard the story, and I told him the story, and he went home, he said it took him six months to listen to the album, because he said if the album was not that great, this is not such a good story. Mm -hmm. And when he heard the album, he said, thank heaven, this is a fantastic album. Yeah. And the whole thing about the story, it's a great story, a great artist, it's about that record. Yeah. That was the record, that was the piece of art mm. that actually created this whole story, and it's that good. And people who hear it now, it's just moving around. So why it didn't do well then, I'm glad. I mean, yeah. I'm thrilled. It made our story, but it's impossible to say. But I'll just say South Africans have really good taste. <laughs> well, uh, one of the, the more critical questions I, I need to ask is that people locally felt that, you know, maybe the whole political connection was, was overstressed. Um, Anton Kahnemeyer wrote a, a letter to Die Burger and he said, well, listen, every white racist and his mate also owned cold facts, so... Uh, if you watch the movie, it basically says, well, look, cold fact influenced the full fray movement. They were very much protest singers. Uh, it may be very true for Willem Muller, uh, but I think uh, the point that Kahneman was trying to make is like, look, a lot of bad and good people like the Beatles and Elvis, and a lot of bad and really good people like Rodriguez. In fact, I remember when, when I was at school, I think it was Standard 9, Rodney Seale came to talk. And... Um, and he warned a lot of people about Uriah Heep and whatever. And then he, he said, well, and listen to this song by Rodriguez. And he started playing, I wonder how many. And the whole matric class started singing along to the song, <laughs> which, uh, which, of course, made Rodney and the teachers more worried. You know, so, yeah, so do you think this was something that Malik did for a predominantly Western audience? How do you feel about it? Yeah, I, mean, I think it was overstated. I mean, I think it absolutely was. Um, but at the same time, I think that the, 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 the music did resonate with the youth of South Africa and it did have some kind of protest, questioning nature to the actual lyrics and, and the songs. And I mean, I think for that reason, I mean, just to talk about sex in a song was, yeah. you know, yeah. a thing and that... Sugar Man, the drug thing, yeah. establishment blues. Yeah, it was a thing that wasn't done yet. I mean, I remember at that very time, I mean, you know, you'd go to a dance or a soki or something and at midnight the lights would come on and the music would stop it was illegal you know not illegal but yeah. wrong to dance on a sunday it was you know we it was a very you know our society was very um yeah, the, so the, conservative the, you know. the american trailer for the film 
took something I said and put a little interesting snip in it, and it changed what I said about mm. his impact on South Africa, and there's nothing we could do. It, we're not complaining. It did well in America. Yeah. But it was a, it was a misquote. Yeah. It wasn't think, that big in the movie. They made a bigger thing of it afterwards. Well, I think and it's, it's an interesting aside in the way that I think that it's, if, if you want to tell stories to uh, a, a big Western European or American audience, you need to, in a way, give it a political angle. Because you know, people only know about white people in South Africa regarding to apartheid, so you have to somehow explain that. Yeah. But to me, the, you know, the, the question raised by the movie was, the way I listened to Rodriguez and, and, and the way I really connected with him, I never thought of him as a political uh, protest singer. Um, it, it becomes very clear from the book and the movie that he was, as a private person, really an activist. Um, how, do, how do you feel about that? Yeah, you would imagine these being so political, apart from establishment blues, hmm. the mayor hides the crime rate. Cause yeah, yeah. I don't even know the lines. But um, there's nothing really else political, so one wonders why he didn't. You know what I mean? It's just not as political as, as he was. Yeah. I don't know. Because you almost have the impression that if, if you take the, the, the Bob Dylan parallel, because I remember when, when Light in the Attics issued it again, suddenly I'm opening Uncut and you know, he has rave reviews about the Latino Dylan, you know? And you think, like, geez, how is this possible? But. Um, you know, if you think of, of songs like Like a Rolling Stone or Just Like a Woman, which is this like sort of almost intimate hate mail that, that Bob Dylan put in song form, I felt that, that Rodriguez was very much that kind of guy. How much was he influenced by Dylan, you think? Or was he... I don't know that he was influenced by Dylan at all. Yeah. He's never cited being influenced by Dylan. He was influenced by people like Hank Williams and... and oh, okay. um, yeah, and in fact, in the book, you know, we go into detail about, you know, who his influences were. And, yeah. um, but I think he was influenced by life around him. And, um, you know, I think his lyrics reflect that and they reflect what was going around him and, and the struggle in America at the time against the Vietnam War and, you know, the race riots and, and stuff like that. And these things come through in the music. Um, but he, he has never, that I've known, ever cited Dylan as an influence. Yeah, that's... You know? Yeah, that's interesting yeah. to me because it feels to me like establishment blues, subterranean homesick blues seem to be parallels. But then again, if you interview artists and you ask them about their main influence, they'll probably say free jazz. And you think, oh, well, I think they listen to a lot of yeah. something completely different. But never mind that. Let's, let's move on to Rodriguez, who seems to be like a total enigma. I mean, your book is structured as the mystery, the man, the music, the movie. And the mystery being what happened to Rodriguez. But Rodriguez still, to me, after the movie and your book, is a mystery. And maybe we should just read that, uh, that note. It's, it's on 190, where, where page one. Okay, let me, let me get it. <laughs> I don't know if you... Would you like to read from it? Or? Okay. Depends. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's from the correspondence between uh, you and, and, and Malik. And um, where Malik is, is becoming a little bit disheartened. You know, that bit there. That's um, In June 2009, Malik attended Rodriguez's London gig, and two of my children were in the audience, and about 60% of the audience was South African. And having, having just spent some more time with Rodriguez, Malik again wrote to me about his experience with the singer, and he said, I quote, Rodriguez is not the easiest guy to be friends with. Someone told me something that might be true. Rodriguez likes new people and to make new acquaintances, but the closer you think you get to him, he'll react in the opposite way. You never know Rodriguez better than the first day you meet him. 
It's a strange thing. It was a bit like that for us. He was never as willing to cooperate in the film as he was the first time we met him. Yeah. Yeah, and spot on. It's, that's, that's it. So that's still your, I mean, after you've basically been a manager, minder, and it, all those things, you still, you know, you, you can't really say no, who he is. Absolutely not. Yeah, he's, you know, when he comes here, we don't even know if he's going to contact us or not. You just have no idea. He's very private. You know, what I found fascinating in, in the movie as well is that you, you get this idea of, on the one hand, somebody incredibly shy, um, who doesn't want to speak, he's, he's got an eyesight problem as well, so I suppose that contributes to the fact, but then, um, then he's also very obstinate. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the most amazing things that uh, in the book is the fact that he just refuses to go to the Oscars. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're like, this is the, the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, his daughters want to go. Um, and, and, and one of the, the theories that you say is that his first wife, Connie, says, well, you know, Brandon or Marlon Brando refused to go to the Oscars the year he received the award because of his protest against what was done to Native American people. But Brando made a big statement about it. Rodriguez just said, no, he's not going. And in yeah. fact, the, the night of the Oscars, the guy from Sony Distributors was like, you know, also furious about the fact that well, he's not there. Well, I think there was uh, two nights before the, the Oscars, we had the, the Sony party in, in, in Hollywood. And the, the, one of the big wigs from Sony, I thought he was going to burst a blood vessel in his head. He was so angry because they had lured every single carrot they could in front of Rodriguez and the whole family to try and get them to come. First class tickets, you know. First class tickets, we bring you all, you know, everything. And it was, you know, short of like personal jetpacks or something. Yeah, it was, <laughs> for some weird reason, we thought that if he wasn't there, it might affect our chances, you see. That was what they sort of told us. Like they were still deciding who had won this Oscar, oh, okay. which was rubbish, you know what I mean? So yeah. eventually he he had just finished this long South African tour. It was a real schlep to get not just back to Detroit, but right across to Los Angeles on time in a tuxedo. He just said, nah. And it made no real difference. I mean, it would have been nice to have him there, but it, 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 on the night it made no real difference. Yeah. yeah. But one of the Except his that, daughters. Yeah, one of the <laughs> things that the book really covers is, you know, his own political activism. Yeah. In the missing years that we South Africans and the rest of the world know nothing about him were all these years that he spent a lot of time walking around campus at the university near to where he lived and he was involved in a lot of um, activism at the time. I mean, in the book you'll find photographs of Rodriguez at a, a lettuce boycott, you know, mm. with Cesar Chavez, the famous, um, um, what do you call it, uh, trade unionist mm. and, and, and stuff like that. So he, he appears in all these places very behind the scenes. Um, but one of the things he was active in was um, the, the American Indian, um, you know, um, they would have powwows on campus and he arranged some of these powwows and he was very involved in that cause at mm. the time. And so whether it's, you know, 100% true or not, when I try to, you know, get to the bottom of why he didn't want to go to the Oscars, you know, one of the things came out was Think Brando yeah. and talking specifically about an episode of... Um, is it Sasheen Littlefeather, I think her mm. name was, who went up to accept the Oscar on behalf of uh, Marlon Brando or to reject the yeah, Oscar yeah. on behalf of Marlon Brando and did what was quite an impassionate speech and a very beautiful speech and a very beautiful woman, by the way. And you can Google it. It's actually quite something to see. And apparently this had affected Rodriguez at the time, as it would have anyone who was mm. watching the Oscars at the time. But yeah. worthwhile a Google. And that's the reason why he said he, you know, um, well, apparently yeah. he didn't go, but it was also touring issues. Um, but, you know, at the same time, to say that he was tired, too tired to go to the Oscars 
doesn't make sense because when you're tired, and you'll find a way to go to the Oscars. Yeah, yeah, I, it's I, I, uh, I sleep on the plane. Uh, uh, yeah, would have a Red Bull and, and uh, yeah. yeah, go. Uh, uh, what, what I find interesting, if you had to, you know, if you follow other sort of underground stories, um, is if one were to speculate, wouldn't it also be plausible to say that maybe Rodriguez was this kind of self-saboteur who, on the one hand, you know, comes across as, as, as very shy, but there's also the kind of wounded narcissist who would rather not go for, for psychological reasons rather than political reasons. Yeah, you know, I mean, you were talking about Malik. I mean, Malik, rest in peace, is the sweetest man we've, you've ever met. Charming. He even got through to the Rodriguez family. He went there, and he even got Rodriguez to appear in front of a camera. And that might not sound like a big deal, but a couple of years before, there was a Dutch woman who was making a film about Rodriguez, and she went, it's in the book, she went, what was her name? Willemick She went to Detroit, filmed, she was halfway through a movie, and we took him to London, and he just decided, that's it, no more. He wouldn't let her into the theater. He said, if she walks in, I'm not performing, it's all in the book, this thing. Out of the blue, she landed up with no movie. Yeah. And for Malik to get through to that inner core and to get him to sit down and, and talk in front of a camera. What you see on film is pretty much all that Malik really kind of filmed. There yeah. wasn't much more. That's what we got. I think there's Rodriguez something like, like five minutes. Story. Yeah. I think something like only five minutes of on-screen time with Rodriguez right at the end of the film sitting in his room, snowing outside, and if you guys remember. Yeah. Yeah. That is it, and it's cut down to three minutes yeah. or whatever. There is no other... And, and he, the, I mean, there were two big hitches, and the book goes into this with the making of the film. One was, you know, three years into the making of the film, uh, Malik still hadn't got Rodriguez on camera. You know, and so. the rights to the music. And then, he, and then as he wrote to Sugar, and, and, you know, for those of you who have read the book or haven't yet, what's quite incredible is Sugar's communication between Malik, the two of them going back yeah. and forth. And um, he eventually gets the idea. He says, well, hang on, why don't we preserve the mystery and let that be part of the story? And, um, you know, so he was going to use that to his advantage. But I think the movie really worked because at the end we, you know, we get to interview Rodriguez at, at the end of the film. So I think that was really yeah. great. But um, that's all. You know? Yeah, I, I think that what, what works such a charm in the movie is that you, you, you end up really wanting to see this lost man and suddenly there he is. And then he's perfectly enigmatic again and disappears, you know. So that's, it's, it's like with horror movies, you know. The rule is not to show the monster too often, you know. And, yeah. uh, and here as well, it well was the, the fact that he remains a mystery is part of the charm of the movie. As, as you read in the book, when we went to Sundance very briefly, we had him with us, Rodriguez, and we'd show the movie to a crowd of Americans who found out he was dead, then found out he's alive, and then afterwards were blown away by this movie. And then you get a, 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 um, a group discussion that interested, calling Malik and myself and Craig, and then but calling Rodriguez, this man was actually standing in front of him and he brought a guitar. So what did he do? He turned his back to the audience and played. Yeah. In front of the sun, he played with his back to the audience. Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, that know. is one of the most fantastic, fascinating aspects of the book as well, that you have, here's this guy that you know now is a household name after the docky. But in the first screening, he's in the audience and nobody knows yeah. he's there. You know, the, the whole movie is about searching for him. He's sitting right there. Yeah. And then he pops up onto the stage. I mean... Well, that that's, was the, that's been the best part, is it's not often you can tell the American people something that they actually none of them know. Yeah. And that's been the best part. Just people <laughs> watching this movie think, this, is, this has got to be fictional. Yeah. Because we'd know, he lives in, you know what I mean? And that's been the best part. But, but, but back to Rodriguez the Enigma, 
One of the things I'd also like to know is why do you think he is so reluctant to talk about his music? You know, if he doesn't want to talk about his personal life, fine. He doesn't want to talk about his music. And why has, like, Rick Rubin or some guy not approached him and said, look, you know, we get, we've got this hot band, we're going to do a new Rodriguez album. Why not? Um, first of all, a lot of people have approached him. There's a guy called Tony Visconti who was... Uh, Bowie. Bowie's guy... Yeah. Well, they approach him through me, and I pass it on, and then yeah. nothing happens. I, I, could, I could spend the next five minutes telling you how many people have approached us to record a new album with Rodriguez. Yeah. And apparently he's got 30, 40, 50, 100 new songs. Don't I? And the other thing is no one can get hold of him. I mean, you know, so it's very hard to get hold of him. You have to use, like, a kind of a... You have to go through his daughters, and, you know, so I got an email... email address doesn't work. I got an email, like, two, three weeks ago from my cousin who lives in Antibes, who was contacted by the Prince of Bahrain and wants to get hold of Rodriguez. I, got the, I haven't <laughs> responded yet. <laughs> and that's just one of, like, 40, you know, that we get a year. Well, I mean, a, he yeah. gets more than I do, but it's just uh, crazy. It's been an avalanche of offers and producers and yeah. songwriters, and he's just... So it was true, just to get back to your question, yeah. so at one point, um, when he was sent on a publicity gig um, to L.A., he brought on, um, so it wasn't the, you know, at the time there were the Black Panthers that were fighting oh. the cause, and then there was the, and I can't remember the, um, the Hispanic American organization at the time who were fighting for independence of mm. California. Mm. Yeah. And he brought the leader onto stage with him, and, and so the record execs, you know, were very angry that he'd, he'd politicized what was supposedly at the time a, a gig just so that they could see his music and sign him up for bigger things, you know, yeah, yeah. stuff like that. Jeez, well, yeah, self-sabotage. Uh, yeah, self-sabotage. That, that seems to be because uh, what I thought was an interesting parallel, to, towards the end of the book you mentioned that, um, that Malik met Sasha Gervaisi who did the fantastic Anvil mm. rockumentary. Now, after Anvil won, won the Oscar, I think they played live to more people than in the last 25 didn't, years. Didn't win the Oscar. But, oh, didn't, didn't Anvil win? No. Oh, okay, well... I remember it was like a big contender, yeah. sorry. But yeah. anyway, so after the success of the documentary, Anvil went on to record new albums, and now suddenly they're opening for ACDC, where yeah. they've been left for dead. Um, but yeah, it didn't have the same effect on, on Rodriguez, really. I mean, obviously... What, what, touring-wise? No, 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 touring-wise, he's touring. He went to Letterman, he went to Jay Leno, he went all... But he's not, he's not in the studio. He's not in the studio, no. Actually, so... I mean, one fact that comes out in the book, and by the way, if you haven't seen Anvil, it's, it's excellent, <laughs> fantastic film, um, is that all the music Rodriguez ever recorded, from the first time he recorded in 67 to the last time he recorded, I think it was mid-1970 or something, I think the album came out in 71, but I think he recorded in London in 1970, he's never recorded again. He's only set foot once after that, Oh, sorry, he did three, th three songs after that in 1973. Um, but that whole period is the complete period of time that he set foot in a recording studio or that he's recorded anything. He entered the recording studio one more time with the DJ, what was his name? Um, the guy Holmes. Or yeah, David, right. Holmes. David Holmes. Yeah. And, but if you listen to the record, you can't actually hear Rodriguez on it. I, I think don't think he's on it. Yeah. yeah, and so that's the only time he's never, ever set foot again. He's got this, this lovely saying of Tony Bennett's that he wrote 20 songs that gave him the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. That's he's, it. He doesn't, doesn't need... Well, you know, people want him to bring out an album, but I don't think he should. You know, mm. when you've written two albums that good, 
You know, the Ameri- I mean, we've had these albums for 40 years. The Americans have had it for like two years. They want a new album. <laughs> really? <laughs> they, can, they can wait Come a while. On, you know? yeah. One of the things, I mean, at the time, we were curious about them. We, we have our theories why yeah. he's never recorded anymore or why he's never written any more songs. But one of the things that did answer the question a little bit was um, a conversation um, we had with uh, um, the Mike Theodore, the producer mm. on on most of his music, and he said basically, he said, yes, I've heard the other songs, and they're quite good, but they haven't been finished yet. Okay. And I kind of said, I'd love to hear them someday, and he said, yes, you and the rest of the world. And um, he said, I'll never play them to anyone, basically. So there are these demo tapes somewhere, Yeah. and there was a period of time where Rodriguez was um, you know, calling Mike Theodore at three or four in the morning and saying, I've got this, listen to this, and he'd play a few verses. You know, and then there's lots of examples of that where he'll play three or four verses of a new song that doesn't exist on an album. Mm. In fact, on Tonya Selly's documentary, at the end he plays a song that doesn't exist anywhere else. You know, yeah. and three or four times we've heard that, but he never. In fact, the only he refuses to even play the songs that he sang on. He refuses to play them on stage if he didn't write them, except for the covers that he plays. But he won't play. Gamora, and there's one other song that he didn't write, which was that um, on his album. He refuses to play those songs live. Was that we written just for the album by somebody else? Strange. Yet he'll play Fever. Yeah. yeah so. Well, one of the other things that I found fascinating about the book is that um, if you watch the documentary, obviously Malik Benjalul, I don't know if that's the right way to, to pronounce his, his name, is, is the background guy, he's the director. But with this book, you realize what it took for him, you know, to finish this movie and, and, you know, to work three years on a project where you are in financial dire straits and you still don't know whether you're going to get clearance to use the music and if you can't use the music, the whole thing bombs. And then in the end, you realize that, look, I need to know where to premiere this, what's the best festival going to be. In the end, getting hold of, of Simon Chin, you know, where he basically just walked in there, you know, when he was... <laughs> basically doing other work to put bread on the table. Um, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, heartwarming story. And, and you also get the sense of this absolute um, idealist, you know, who, uh, who would do anything to, 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 to make this magic happen. And then he wins the Oscar, and more or less a year later he commits suicide. And everybody seems as nonplussed about this as people were back then about the disappearance of Rodriguez, who everybody thought committed suicide, was alive and well. And this guy goes and kills himself. I mean, is, is there, do you have any theories that you were just not were scared to share in the book, or are you just gobsmacked? Well, one of the things is that part of the book, the movie part of the book, reads a bit like an adventure story, because yeah. it's a, a Malik had to do some incredible things to get the movie made, like, for example, um, shooting models in LA, you know, he got put on a job in LA, and then he got the situation where he was able to interview the producer who did the London album, um, Steve Rowland, but he couldn't get there. And just luck would have it that these models were like, can we, we'd like to go and swim in this town for the day. And, you know, Palm Springs. Palm Springs. Yeah. And so he gets a ride there. And then he makes some story about going to a coffee shop. It quickly goes and films you know, yeah. Steve Rowland. And, and just all these little amazing little twists on how he pulled these moves. But the one thing about Malik Benjul was that he could disarm any human being. He would walk in and you'd be his friend before the, the day was over. He just had that ability to just, mm. you know, and, and walking into Simon Chin and, and saying to the secretary, I've got the best story that he will ever hear, you know, and 
things like yeah, that. And, and Simon Chin is the guy who produced Man on Wire. That's right. Uh, won the docky, uh, the Oscar docky yes, in 28 or 29, yeah. was it? Uh, yeah, 2008, so, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so you can also reason that if, if Malik wasn't able to convince Simon Chin mm. to, to come aboard as producer, he might not have made Sundance. If he didn't get that response at Sundance, he might not have won the Oscar. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolute... It's, it's a fairy, it's a fairy yeah. tale. It really is. As you read it, it's just, having lived it, it was just a complete fairy tale. Everything just fell into place been called sugar 20 years before isn't it? it's just too weird it's yeah. not I've got, it, it's just too weird and what happened to Malik was just you know I've, a, a, a good friend of mine Brian Curran who's been part of this the whole yeah, way yeah. coined the expression it's a story that just keeps having happy endings mm. until then until with Malik and you know Malik lived in Stockholm he told me there are a lot of people Swedish people need to commit suicide he mm. told me it's because of the weather it's because it's dark all the time mm. But, you know, what I actually think, and we didn't put it in the book because we didn't want to yeah, sensationalize yeah. it. I think it was just a medication problem that happened. I don't think it was, uh, I think he was on medication and it went a bit awry. And I think it was just something as simple as that. I don't think it was a response to the success or to the movie. He was yeah. busy on another movie. What was his name? Lawrence Anthony. Yeah, the, the, the guy who did the, the, the elephants, who, the, the, who talks to the elephants and stuff. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Had, he was halfway through working on getting a new movie going. So we'll never know. I had an email from him the day before. He didn't say anything. So it's just the tragedy of the story. And it's, 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 it's just put a damp on everything to a large degree. Yeah. You know, and I think life's like that. You know what I mean? Just sometimes there's not always fairy tales. You know what I mean? Yeah, because, I mean, there must, be, there must have been something absolutely remarkable from this Swedish kid from nowhere. You know, yeah. it's his... It's his first full-length documentary, yeah. and, he, and he wins the Oscar. He has Simon Chin on board. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, this year the Oscars, a guy—I uh, don't think he was a Swedish guy. I think he was someone who won a won an Oscar for something. I think it was a docky or a short mm. film. I just saw him standing, and I thought, boy, I hope you're going to be able to handle this, you know, because yeah. it's a huge thing. I mean, we went to the Oscars, you know, Craig. Yeah. And um, if I can just tell one story, it's in the book as yeah. well. Is that it was just. I can't swear, but it was it was just a mind blast. Okay, and we went to the Oscars. We drove up in the car. We got out. We walked through. We did the whole thing, and afterwards, because we had an Oscar, we could go to the Vanity Fair party. Yeah, that's and that incredible. is the most exclusive party on this planet. And there we were standing at a table. I've got a picture. It's Craig and myself and Malik. And our Oscar on the table, and guys like George from Seinfeld coming up and saying, "Oh, can I hold your Oscar?" You know this kind of stuff. And it was <laughs> that's the, that in the book. You did put George in the book. George, no, 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 George. I don't think George. But that you should do that in the next edition. But what you'll <laughs> read in the book is, is, is why well, I'm telling this is because across the table was an elderly American gentleman with a crew cut, grey crew cut, Congressional Medal of Honor, and then we got introduced to him. It was Buzz Aldrin. Okay, and for us, oh, there's baby boomers in the crowd. Come on, for us, Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon. And for Craig and I, I think that was the metaphor that we realized this is the end of our journey and this is as good as it's going to get and boy, it's been good. And we came back and I think the book was just a way of getting it out of our system. I don't know how well it's doing. I don't know how well it's going to do. And quite honestly, I think speaking for Craig as well, that's not the important part. Success would be lacquer, but it's not what it's about. For us, it was a completion of a 20-year journey that's changed our lives, our families' lives, people's lives around the world, and the Rodriguez family. We just wanted to get it out. And I think through Penguin, who helped us with it all the way, 
it's been, as with everything else, a wonderful experience. And we just feel, uh, speaking for Craig, sitting in now, it's, it's, the, it's, it's kind of the end of the journey. I know Craig's going to go on to become an author because he's the, he's the writer. <laughs> That's Listen. the writer, okay? I'm the, I'm the journalist. I'm the facts. He's the writer. Yeah, but you're a storyteller. Yeah, but he's the writer. <laughs> and it's worked out lacquer for both of us. And, but it's the completion of a wonderful story. and that It is a wonderful story. And, and the thing is, you know, the art is in the telling. And it's wonderfully told. Because in the end, when you get to the, the, the movie part, really is riveting. I mean, you really feel yourself like, geez, what's going to happen? Especially one of the cliffhangers to me was, I mean, you have this... Um, the, the guy from Sussex, what is he, Malcolm Avant or Clarence, Clarence. Clarence, Avant. Clarence Avant? And I mean, he comes across as such a dodgy character in the dock. You think like, this is the guy who took the money. Of course he mm. took the money. Money trail ends here. But now, he's seen the movie where he's portrayed as such, and he holds the rights to the music. So how's Malik going to convince this guy to give him the rights to the music? Because you yeah. can't make a music biopic without the music. Yeah. So you get, up, you, know, you get into that whole thing and... Are these guys going to come on board? Is it going to work with Sundance? And then, in the end, that Vanity Fair party is really surreal. And it's also, I mean, you, you have to, to tell a bit about Quincy Jones, Greg. I mean, because I'm sure that's, that's the story you're going to bore your grandkids with. Well, actually, I mean, there's a lot of stories about that night that is so funny. I mean, watching Jane Fonda eat a hamburger was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was completely, it was a complete pinch-me moment for the two of us because, you know, I mean, we just... Every time of the story, we just went, oh, let's see how far this can take us. Oh, even further. It was funny. But, um, um, but you know, Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones, basically, I mean, I went to the bathroom and, you know, it was wet. I'm at the urinal. And I look at the guy next to me. You know, you want to always, if, for the women out here, as a man, you always look like that, you know, at a urinal. You never <laughs> talk the head. And um, it's Quincy Jones, you know. And I just immediately stood there and I thought, I mean, what are these people, I could tell people the story. But as I walk out of the bathroom with him, we're walking out together, Michael Jackson's Thriller starts to play. <laughs> and that was just a complete coincidence. Which was produced by Quincy Jones. For produced, those, yeah. 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 And I just looked at him and he just said, I can't remember what he said, but he just shook his head and said, yeah, every time, you know, because it's just <laughs> one of those things that, you know, yeah. I mean, just like he can't go anywhere where he's sitting in a room. It's like... Everywhere we go now, any coffee shop we'll go to to work at or something, you know, Rodriguez will play. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. one of those things that, that happens now. You know? Yeah, but you also get an idea of the, the, the incredible frustration going to making a documentary. And one of the, the bits that I thought was very funny was, I mean, there's the now iconic opening sequence where you were riding along Chapman's Peak, you singing along to Sugar Man. But apparently those scenes were absolutely grueling to film. <laughs> Yeah, you thought you might drive off the road. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. It's, it's interesting. It was. We did it like twenty-five times or something. On, on in heat. Excuse yeah. me, in heat like this. Malik wanted the sun to be at a certain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. And then apparently for the aerial shots, he tried to get a helicopter. Yeah. Then the wind was blowing too bad. So then what did he use? A crane. And then they took like a car that looked like your car yeah. to try and get there. I mean, it's it's insane. Well, the yeah. funniest. One of the funniest things I, I remember was sitting at Sundance when the movie played for the first time. And, of course, one of the opening scenes is of Sugar singing the song on screen. And I don't think you'd seen your face that big singing before on the screen, no, had no. you? Yeah, because I, as that came out, I just saw his head go... <laughs> 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 like, so like yeah, you just, just But I'll tell you something. You so, you know, the whole story is a lot of coincidences. You mm. know, and I, I, we talk about some of them in the book. But one of the funniest things is that Malik, you know, shot the film but didn't get the rights shot further, didn't get the rights. And he got to a point, a critical point, 
where now the film's now finished, they still don't have the rights to use the music. You know? yeah, yeah. So you, know, you get to a point where you know, there's a film that was just made recently in, in, in um, Hollywood about a certain session musician where they got so far that the film was now worth something and had they got the rights earlier, it would have been not expensive. Mm. Now it was almost impossible to get the rights. And we had the same thing with our book. <laughs> we started negotiating for the rights to, pr to print the lyrics, you know, mm. to have any lyrics in our book. And we started negotiations, and it just dragged on and on and on. We eventually finished with the book. We still hadn't got the rights. Then the book was about to come out. We still didn't have the rights for the music. We got into ourselves into the same mess. And um, now we have a similar uh, parallel is that our book is selling everywhere except guess where? America. <laughs> oh. We can't get the book out in America, so... We're not Yet. sure what to do. Well, there. yeah. Well, we'll we'll, we'll keep our <laughs> fingers crossed. Um, and one of the things, what well, you know, we, we, a beautiful bit in the book is where you say you write to Malik saying that you know he's he's in the final stages of the and and for the first time you watch the Oscar awards where you feel like, you know, it's always interesting to see those guys only go to the Oscars like once. You know, they don't look like on the they're not the A-listers, but they they go there and they have that that moment and. And for once, you somehow feel that, wow, you know, could this could year. actually be possible. And then it happens, you know. So, I mean, uh, to put it this way, the fact that you were born in Kimberley, you know, now makes me feel <laughs> that maybe it's a sign that I was born in Kimberley. I might get to the Oscars yet somehow, you know. <laughs> we actually went to the same school we discovered this <laughs> yeah. morning. So now I feel like, wow, that's it's a good omen. I never thought of it that way. But, yeah, lovely stuff. But I think it's we've got about a quarter of an hour left. So if there's anybody here who has questions... For two men who have walked on the moon, <laughs> shoot. I really enjoyed this talk. Um, I just want to make a remark about the whole thing of him being enigmatic and his music not being so overtly political. Uh, my 22-year-old son bought both records after seeing this movie. And we've been listening. I know, I know the first one from when I was at university, so we come from that time slot. And suddenly my... Uh, near adult and adult children are totally enamored with this man but it seems to me that he that he's addressing something which is still very relevant in South Africa and that is the politics of privilege mm. because his music might not be overtly political in the sense that you would expect from traditional activism but it sounds to me like everything that he's done is basically in line with him saying I want to kick the privileged people in the teeth from the record producers to the, anybody who could possibly manipulate him with his money and you often find that people who come from such an underprivileged background feel very inferior to people from high privilege uh, and that comes through in everything he does that's the that's not self-sabotage it's a form of self-preservation to say you still don't rent that kind of space in my head I don't know whether that's a correct assessment, but from what I've heard, that is exactly what he's saying. It's self-preservation and not self-sabotage. I think that's spot on. I think what you've said is absolutely spot on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're definitely in a transitional stage. If um, I can yeah. say something about that, let ek liever na Afrikaans to oorslaan, is wat sy nou sê, wat ek ook gedink het, terwijl ek nou na daai deel van die gesprek geluister het, is, vir allemaal die meeste mense, is dit 
die ding om te bereik. Wow, hier is al die geleentede voor jou, een klomp ander mense het verskrikkelijk hard gewerk, om vir jou dit te gee, die twee mans beginnende met die story, en hier, Rodriks, is uiteindelijk jou kans om die roem te smaak wat jy 20 jaar gelede moest gesmaak het, die geld te kry, die glans en alles, en die documentaire aan die einde van die flik, dat iets van die man so by my geblei, op diezelfde manier met die Bob Marley uh, documentaire, is dat, wel die gedachte wat bij mij was, is iets omtrent die man is een profeet, en daar is iets, cyber, ek weet nou, mensen is niet net goed of slecht nie, en ek weet uit sy ander kante ook, maar daar is iets suiver in die man, wat op een ander vlak is, en dit is ook om hy sy eie ding doen, op een manier wat ons allemaal wat die gewone ideeën zet van succes, dit tel niet nie vorm nie. Nog vraag? Hmm. I'll ask the question in English, because um, I suppose one of you two will, will answer. What does Rodrigo himself has to say about the fact that his um, records that in E in those days, um, uh, physically had somebody there with a thumbnail to destroy certain tracts that they couldn't be played. And um, uh, does he comment on it at all? Does he, does he um, say anything about it? I don't think he said anything to me about it. Did he say anything to you? No, but the thing is, that the, the, the thing about damaging the records, a lot of people got the impression that every Rodriguez album that came into this country got scratched. It, it actually wasn't. It was just the ones, like every copy of a record, one copy of every record went to the SABC. And as soon as it came into the SABC, they scratched it. So it was only for the radio play. But the fact is that with all the censorship, those albums sold incredibly. So I don't think he's too bothered about the fact that he might have lost a bit of airplay because he was a huge success despite it, which is an interesting thing. Do not have airplay and to be a success. But um, it was only a few of the records that actually did get scratched. You mentioned a, a quote that was changed in the, in, in, in the doc. What was your original quote and what was it changed to? It's, it, I can't remember the quote. That's a great question, but it's... It, I'm sitting and I'm talking about about the politics. I'm sorry. I, I, but, no, 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 but I, I was trying to think of it earlier and they, they cut out a piece that made it sound like he was more politically involved than he was in South Africa. That he, you know, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember, but um, email me and I'll give it to you. But it was it changed it, and when every time I saw this American trail, I got I got angry because it giving the. But but as Donnie said, that's what the Americans like. They like that political angle, and they did. They got, they went for it, and we got a lot of criticism for it. But that's just showbiz, you know. Mm. Yeah, you're not going to get. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get the criticism on that side of the of, of the no. pond. <laughs> um, one of the other things that I thought was very interesting at the end of the book was, all the while in the movie and also in the book, you think. Okay, well, so what happened to the money? I mean, how dodgy was this Clarence Avant? And, and is Rodriguez now going to get his money back? Then you realize, oh, my word, now Rodriguez is being sued because the guy said he had a contract with him that preceded his deal with Sussex Records. In other words, Sussex Records never had the rights to put out his music in the first place. That's right. So, Correct, yeah. Yeah, gets, what's happening gets, now? I mean, it, is he, he's receiving royalties now, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, the record was re-released through Light in the Attic. 
yeah. which was a little independent label, found the record, put it out, got the rights, put it out. Good timing just before the movie came out. In a quick sentence, Rodriguez signed to Gentleman A for five years, brought out one song, a single, and it was yeah. a flop, and the guy let it go. But during that time, he went and signed with Clarence Event, used all the fake names, you didn't have rights to sign that contract, brought out Cold Fact. Here's the weird part. Clarence Event, Gentleman A is suing Clarence Event because mm. he saw the movie and said, but that's my artist. He couldn't have recorded that stuff. He was under contract to me. Here's the weird part. Gentleman A is suing Clarence Event. Rodriguez is taking the part of Gentleman A, not Clarence Event. So Rodriguez... I don't know what the hell he's doing because he's taking the <laughs> he sided with the guy who's suing him and yeah. he, and by siding with him he's pretty much lost the case I think. Yeah. So I mean the case is not completed yet yeah, but the, it hasn't finished yet. The funny thing is is that um uh, gentleman A yeah. <laughs> um, Harry Bulk he didn't he knew about later over the years he knew because they friends mm. um they all know each other. I mean, he knew this. It was only when the movie started making, the album started making money because of the movie, yeah. that suddenly he decided, oh, hang on, I've got a raw deal. In all the years when the album didn't sell, he didn't care about that. Yeah. <laughs> and also, the fact is, is that uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman on Broadway called Hal Prince, who is probably the most famous guy on Broadway, brought out the first Fiddler, first Lammers. And he's very interested in the story, and they're very interested in putting it at Broadway musical, which when you see the rubbish that become Broadway musicals, I yeah. think this is kind of a good idea. Unfortunately, no one knows who owns the bloody music. So there's this court case going on, and when they finish the court case, then we know who owns the music, and then we can go and get some rights. But it's just dragging on, so it's, it's, it's in abeyance at the moment. Well, in the book you also talk about Philip Noyce, mm. um, who talked about doing a biopic where... Johnny Depp was going to play yeah. Rodriguez. Yeah. Well, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> Johnny Depp is Rodriguez. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> no. Yeah. But there's a lot of possibilities, but yeah. who knows, you know. So, uh, in other words, um, Rodriguez is receiving money at the moment, while this is still being clarified, but he's oh, yeah. not. I know. Rodriguez has done exceptionally well. Yeah. The record deals were sorted out. He's getting paid all the royalties from... Because the music was reissued in America through Light in the Attic and Sony, and he's paid every single cent, every concert. I mean, he's making a fortune. He's flying around. I did a quote for him. A company wanted him to come to Sun City. Mm. I'm not going to tell you what he quoted. It was a huge amount of money. But uh, he's doing very well. Wow. And for him, ah, he just likes room service. You know what I mean? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, his family are established. They've done well. He, they, they stuck with him. He got his success. He didn't join the 27 Club and hopefully he doesn't join the 69 Club, yeah. which is the new club where everyone's David Frey and all these guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think all, all considered, speaking on behalf of Rodriguez and Craig and myself, I think everyone's content and you know, that's the yeah. essential thing. It's all worked out and we just miss Malika a hell of a lot. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's terrible. Well, one other thing that also intrigued me was the way that uh, he seemed to work through his daughters. You know, how, how, how does that whole family business really work? Because it seemed that you, you had some trouble with the daughters, especially the 25. To <laughs> well, it gets worse because you made a mistake earlier, which I didn't correct you. Uh, yeah. Connie was his second wife. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. So he had two wives, two daughters were the first wife, one daughter the second wife, and there's a bit of, what do you call it, friction. friction. So now the one was running his career, then she got married, had babies, and the other one started running the career, another one. 
you know what? I'm happy I'm not too involved with that. It's, they, you know? Yeah, because the, 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 um, the ex-wives were also glaringly absent. Well, he was still married to Connie, right? He at, is still at, married to Connie, yeah. I thought there was... A, was there a girlfriend then after that? No, now there's a girlfriend, Joe. Oh, okay. He travels yeah. with a girlfriend, Joe. So, but they're all one big and happy family. They, so he travels with a girlfriend. Connie's okay with that? Yeah. I went to visit him on, I don't know which year it was, 2001, and he had a birthday party, and everyone was there. Both wives, daughters, children, grandchildren. They love him. He's a lovely man. He's a family man. He's always been a family man, put his family first. And now that he's got the money to give them the rewards, it's, it's not as important because it just shows that they stuck with him, and they're really centered, lovely people. And the money's lacquer for them, but that's not what this is all about, really. It's a story about family It's values. about a man. <laughs> you know? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Guys, it was, it was such a pleasure meeting you um, Yeah, and reading Thank the you. book. I hope it will do exceptionally well for you guys as well. And I hope that your contractual things with, with Random House Penguin is sorted out. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. We don't have to put up a search for, for, for you, sugar. <laughs> and there won't be a second book either. Then. <laughs> Fantastic. Any last questions? I think we've got three minutes and then they're going to sign books. Yeah, so. What do we I, do now? What do we yeah. do now? <laughs> so, um, I'll, I won't talk for you. Um, yeah, so I, I still write. I'm working on, on a new book and. Um, basically freelance writer working in advertising which is what I've done for many many years so yeah um, I've got a record shop which was my reward for all of this which I made Malik put in the film quite clearly so that a lot of people are now coming to Cape Town and we're on the list with Table Mountain, Robin Island, Marby Vinyl which is quite lacquer <laughs> we have a lot of lovely people coming from around the world who the stories touched so I've, I'm in the record business pretty much which is, very, which is pretty strong at the moment. Yeah, that's, an, that's another part of the fairy tale. Who knew that vinyl was going to make such a big comeback? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one fascinating thing about this story as well is that it's, it's very much a pre-internet story. Yeah. I wonder if anybody would be able to disappear as completely. Well, that's as what everyone did, says. It, you know, it can't well, really happen again. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, there's this whole... What's so interesting is this parallel reality. So here's a guy who strived to make something mm. and failed. But in this parallel reality, he succeeded, Yeah. but didn't know about it. And he didn't know about it because there was no internet and because of the cultural boycott and because of those factors. So that's the, already the premise of that story is a good story before you've even heard the story. Is, yeah. and, and I think I write about it in the book. Like, imagine, you know, you're, you're an author. Imagine writing a book of poetry and only discovering, you know, 30, 40 years later that it was famous in another country. That people <laughs> were quoting it at weddings and like they would play Rodriguez music. And I mean, that's the, the yeah. idea there, you know, that the failure is actually not well, a failure. Well, well a, that's what I think the most important thing of the film is it's, it's, gone, it, it's told artists the most important thing when you become an artist. It's about the art, not the artist. And you do it because you love it and it's what you do. And a lot of people have emailed us and said they picked up their guitar again, they opened their piano again, they picked up their pen again because they didn't have the success, but that's not the reason they do it. Yeah. So it's been very inspirational, and that's really one of the most lacquer things of it. It's, it's that, and, and if I might just add one last thing, I think it's also about the the beautiful side of fandom because there's obviously a downside to obsession and, and fans and we know Beatlemania and all the bad side but there's also something, something beautiful about really caring about something so much that you would selflessly go and sacrifice to, you know, 
honor this person that, that touched your life so deeply. And that's also a lovely part of the story. Yeah. So cheers to the fans. <laughs> There's one part of the story that uh, is in the book, and it's, and, and it's incredible. It's Rodriguez's first concert in South Africa, and he's on stage, and he can't get on stage. Well, he's on the edge of the stage, and he doesn't have the... He gets such stage fright that he can't get on, and then he can't sing. And, he can't, and this, I mean, the, 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 the bass player literally, you know, the... Uh, what track was it? Um, was I Wonder. I Wonder. I wonder just looped that bass line over and over and over again because he couldn't get the guy to sing. It's quite funny, and if you read about it, it's, uh, you know, we describe that whole thing, and then finally, you know, the bass player asks him a question and whispers in his breaks ear. the ice, but I'm not going to tell you the answer. I'm going to read the book, figure it out. <laughs> it's in the book. Guys, thank, thank you, you very much. much. Thank you. Thank you.